Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, Lead Pastor Matt Dean starts a new series going through the book of Mark called Following Jesus. Well, again, welcome. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark's Gospel. That's just following Matthew in the beginning of the New Testament. As we get started this morning, I want you to know that as we journey from now until Easter, this Gospel specifically, I hope, will be so helpful for you to see Jesus for who He is, for you to see, to know, to love Jesus for who He is, for your understanding of God to be challenged in the best of ways, and that His Word would renew your heart and would renew your mind. We're beginning, excuse me, we're going to begin this morning by reading through Mark chapter 1. And from a pace standpoint, please know that every week we'll take on a chapter at a time, and that'll get us through Good Friday and Easter together. And as we read this, listen along, listen along to what Mark writes about Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are... My beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and Jesus was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And Jesus was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region 
of Galilee. And immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling to him, said, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Well, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, when we open our Bibles, we just see Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I and mean, it's hard for us sometimes, unless we look intentionally to think about who are the first people to read this? Who are the first people to hear this? Why was this written in such a way? Why was it so brief? Why is there no birth narrative? Why does it seem to just pick up and at very quick pace begins to unfold this life and ministry of Jesus? And this is the first recorded gospel of Jesus. But here's the reason why. In the first century, roughly 25 or 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christians in Rome were facing an unprecedented series of persecutions. And this Emperor Nero experienced as a leader a fire that consumed 80% of Rome. And he was looking for someone to blame. And he blamed Christians. And this emperor led the way, falsely blaming Christians for a fire that destroyed 80% of the city. Now, Nero was known to be beyond cruel. He would dip Christians in oil, light them on fire, and hoist them up to illuminate the garden at night. This was a kind of emperor that would dress men and women, boys and girls, in that clothing of wild animals and put them on the street and let the dogs attack, kill, and eat them. This same emperor would be the one to feed believers to lions in a coliseum for the entertainment of the people. And it was in that context that this gospel was written. And this gospel was written to encourage early believers, roughly in the year 65, to remember who Jesus is, to remain faithful to Jesus in that call, follow me. And roughly one year after this fire broke out, Mark, with, as my seminary professor would say, with Peter whispering in his ear, would record this gospel. Mark's gospel is really divided in two, two halves. The first eight chapters are miracles and teachings that corroborate that Jesus is the Son of God, and the last half is the last week of Jesus' life. And it was written in fast form to get out in rapid 
expression so that this early church would know, remember, and hold fast to who Jesus was. R.C. Spohl said this about this. He said, the people who were hearing Mark's gospel being read in the catacombs realized that very soon they themselves might find themselves in the wilderness suffering on the floor of the Colosseum or for the sake of the gospel. But they knew that if they were led in chains to that arena, that they had these gospel wars, that their Savior had been there and done that. He said he would never leave them or forsake them because he was their champion who had resisted all things with which Satan had tempted him and stayed the course. And as Mark is writing this, this was the good news that Jesus was reminding them of their salvation and reminding them of the suffering that he himself had experienced. As we think about it, to put it another way, Mark begins the life and ministry of Jesus with a very simple statement. This is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, who is also the Son of God. Now, as we look into these portions of Scripture, I want you to see and remember that uh, just like it says in John towards the end, Jesus did many more things, but these things were written that you may have life, and by believing you may have life in his name. The same thing, when Mark was writing this gospel, as Peter was whispering into his ear, he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. Mark is recording these things to help us see something about Jesus, and every single thing is helping us understand who Jesus is. If you're like, I want to know what God is like, here he is. If you're like, well, what was Jesus really like? Here it is. If you want to know the truth, it says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know God, know Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, know his word. If you want to see Jesus, read the Gospels, and you will see how he taught, how he interacted with people, the compassion and mercy that he has on people. And we, obviously we see that John was preparing the way. We see that John was proclaiming that there is one who is greater that is coming. We pick up in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. A recent survey indicated that most American Christians believed that Jesus did not exist before his birth. That's problematic and false. He is the great I am who has always been. And when this situation unfolds, they're recording this so that the reader and the audience would remember that it was the Father's voice saying, you are, not you just now became, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see in this passage the Trinity, the voice of the Father, the beloved Son, and the Spirit descending on him, like a dove. And you need to know that we've got the benefit of the resurrection. We've got the benefit of Easter in mind. And when we see this voice say to Jesus, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. You need to know that in Christ, that God the Father can say the same thing over you. Not on your merit, not on your good works, not on your obedience, but on the work of Jesus that's been given to you by grace through faith, when God sees you because of your trust in Jesus, he can say to you, son or daughter, with you, I am well pleased. That's the miracle of grace. That's the good news that God would take our sins and do away with them by putting all of them, every one of them, on the cross of Christ. And our confidence, our boast, is that we are free and forgiven because of what Jesus has done, and we can read these words that came from heaven to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As you live this life of faith, as you follow Jesus, you've got to know 
that Jesus pleased God for you. You've got to be confident in his work that your life and obedience would follow from that. It says the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. The truth is this. Most of us, we can't withstand temptation for one minute or 15 minutes or one hour. Think about the last time you had this nagging sense of why do I want to do what I don't want to do? And like a slow drip of water, sometimes, more often than not, we eventually give in to that thing we don't want to do, to say the thing or to see the thing. Jesus, for 40 days, not 40 seconds, not 40 minutes, not 40 hours, 40 days, heard the relentless voice of the accuser saying, don't you want to do this? How about this? Perhaps this? What about this? For 40 days, he was tempted by the enemy himself. But the next sentence is beautiful. The angels were ministering to him. N.T. Wright makes this comment. The angels cannot keep Jesus from being tested by Satan, but they were there to assure him that his beloved father was watching over him, was there with him, was loving him, acting through him, pouring out his spirit all the time in and through him. Jesus went the way that all his people must go, and he could do it because he had heard the words of love, the words of life. Now, that's N.T. Wright's opinion about what the ministering angels did with Jesus, but it's a beautiful picture. Is that exactly how it happened? I don't know, but the word says the angels were there ministering to him. Don't you know that at any moment in his ministry, Jesus could have called down 100 million angels to be done with it all? At any moment in his suffering or trials, Jesus could have commanded the army of angels and ended the whole thing, but it was love and obedience that saw him through to the end. Why does Mark include this? He wants us to see that Jesus was, in fact, tempted, just like it says in the other gospel accounts. Why do we need to know this? Because Jesus, though tempted in every way, was without sin so that you and your temptation and in your sin can know that you have a sympathetic high priest, which means this practically, any temptation you face, Jesus is familiar with. You cannot say that Jesus does not know what it's like to be human, to have hunger, to have desire, to have thoughts that need to be moved in the direction of obedience. Not every thought you think needs to land there. Not every thought or desire or whim, you've got to walk in obedience, think obediently. You're not subject. Your desires are not your highest authority. Jesus is. And in this passage, we see that though tempted, he remained faithful. And the word says that though tempted in every way, he was without sin. Therefore, he is the perfect, sympathetic high priest. And the angels were there ministering to him. It says Jesus begins his ministry in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, that gospel of God proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, in this good news. Now we see the word time in English and it's like, oh, what time is it? Or now is the time. This word time in English is in Greek, it's kairos, which means a time so significant that everything after it is different because of this moment in time. And that's what Mark is saying. This kairos is fulfilled. Jesus is saying this moment is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think practically it's very helpful for us to think about what does it mean to repent 
and believe in the gospel. Now, this word repent, if you're new to church, you're like, what does that mean? If you've grown up in church, it can have all kinds of connotations. Here's what repentance really means. It means turning from sin and turning to God. But if we just hear turn from sin, we're left to manage our own sins. Anyone tried that before? Anyone made the promise, I'll never do that again? I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. I will never do again. Anyone kept that? I doubt it. Because the gospel is not sin management. The gospel is turning from this sin and turning to God. If you do not turn to God, you will sin again. If you do not repent from your sin and in repentance turn to God, you do not have the strength, the willpower, the determination, or the personality to remain strong in the presence of sin and temptation. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is not feeling sorry for your sin. Repentance is not wishing you had not done it. Repentance is not making provision for your flesh to do it all over again. Repentance is not tolerating sin in your life. Repentance is going, I truly am disgusted by this thing, and I do not want to do it anymore. The only way I will not do this thing anymore is if I turn to you, Jesus, and your life and your promises and your character and your spirit within me, helping carry me through this very real temptation that I am enduring. Help me believe. Help me obey. And that's what it means to repent and believe. If you're struggling with temptation, here's the invitation. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Easier said than done, right? Why does Mark include this? Because that invitation for them is the same invitation for us. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that we repent and believe. That same seminary professor that I was listening to yesterday, he, he made the point that Luther's first argument against the church when he nailed to the wall of that door was that repentance was a lifelong pursuit, not a one and off deal. Repentance is the way of the Christian. Turning from sin and turning to God is the way of following Jesus. So when we think about following Jesus, it's not just immorality that we turn from, but it's our pride, it's our self-preservation, it's our own idolatrous heart and thoughts that, w- that make it all about us. Repentance is this lifelong pursuit of saying, I'm turning from this because I know I can turn to you, because I know I can turn to you. Moving along, it says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. This word, follow me, we're going to see. What does it look like for people to follow Jesus? If you continue on, you see this invitation of follow me, but I want us to focus in for a moment in verses 21. As they went into Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. I've stood in that synagogue, in that place. That little synagogue is half the size of this room at best. And just off this synagogue is Peter's house. And when you see Simon, it's Peter in the Bible. This little synagogue was a place where scribes would go and read the word of God. But it says when Jesus entered the synagogue, he taught with authority. He wasn't like a scribe. He was like someone other. And when they would go to Jerusalem and go to the temple, there was a different experience. But these synagogues were outposts. They were gathering places for the people of God spread through all the region. But when Jesus shows up to this synagogue that's adjacent to Peter's home, Clearly, there was a difference, and Jesus began to speak with authority. Why does Mark include that Jesus had authority? Because he wants us to know that. 
And here we see this interaction where Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man, and I love what the demon-possessed man says. What do you have to do with us? Us, in plurality, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know, this is what the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent, come out of him. And that demon leaves this man and the people are going, what is this? This person speaks with authority and it says the fame of Jesus spreads. It goes on and Mark records that as Jesus leaves the synagogue, he entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Literally, you leave the synagogue, three steps, you're at Peter's house. That's how close this house is in fact there. And I don't think a lot about this, but Peter had a wife. Anyone think that Peter had a wife? If you watch The Chosen, you might that might be a refresh, but I just think, when I think Peter in the Bible, I think this guy that just never really had it together, just, just did before he thought, spoke before he thought things through. But Peter had a wife, which means Peter had a mother-in-law, and Mark records that Peter's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And remember, as, as it says, that Peter was whispering in the ear of Mark, this is what happened next. And what happens is that Peter's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, and immediately they told Jesus about her, and Jesus came and took her by the hand, He lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Why does Mark include this? Why does Peter say this is what happened to Mark? This is because in that day and age, women and children were not highly esteemed. They were not highly valued in the culture. Who values women and children? Jesus does. Brings them great dignity and honor. And we're going to see in Mark's gospel how Jesus Jesus brings to the forefront the value and honor of women and children, not just men. If you're a woman and child, you have great value, honor, dignity, and worth in the kingdom of God. And Mark's help, Mark helps us see that. We see that narrative that at sundown they were bringing more who were sick and oppressed. And Jesus withdraws to this uh, lonely place. Three times in Mark's gospel do we see where Jesus pulls away. We see in 135, we see in Mark 646, and we see in Mark 14 this image of Jesus leaving, going to be solitude, because we see that Jesus must be with the Father that he can carry out this ministry. As we continue to look through, I want us to focus in on this, on this story of the leper at the very end. We read, and a leper came to him, in verse 40. We read simply, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. We read, and a leper came to him, but this was a scandalous occurrence in this day and age. And there was multiple forms of leprosy, multiple skin diseases at this time. And for a Jewish person to have leprosy is basically for them to be isolated and alone for the rest of their days. And when this skin lesion came up on this leper, it was the end of his life as he knew it. And this leper was lonely, isolated, and by law could not come within 50 feet of anyone without yelling out, I am unclean, I am unclean. So for a Jewish rabbi named Jesus to come near a leper was a thing that did not happen. And it simply says, and a leper came to him, which means, as Mark is recording this, all the dirty all the diseased, all the strugglers, all the outcasts, all the isolated, all the people on the margins can come to Jesus. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. The next language is curious, Jesus. It says, moved with pity. Another translation says, moved with compassion. But the original language also could connotate that the, Jesus was moved to anger. And we're thinking, was he angry at the leper? No, he was angry at the disease. He was moved with pity and angry over the fact that sickness and sorrow had led this man to such a life of isolation. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And we see that Jesus brings healing to 
this person. I want you to know that when Jesus sees sickness and sorrow and sadness, even today, as we continue to ride out the waves of this pandemic, he sees sickness and sorrow and sadness, and he's moved to compassion because he knows he has conquered sin and disease and death. There's a false gospel that says that Christians don't get sick or that Christians don't get cancer or that Christians don't suffer. Christians do suffer. Christians do die of cancer. Christians do die of COVID. Christians do suffer. And we see in this passage a reminder that the compassion of God moves towards healing people. And you need to know this. Whatever comes to your life on earth, is an invitation to glorify God in heaven. And if you have a diagnosis, glorify God with it. If you're suffering on earth, glorify God with it. Some of the greatest testimonies of God's faithfulness have been through the voices of suffering saints who have endured to the end and yet would still say, God is faithful. Now, as we close this chapter this morning, I want to ask the question, what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? We can see for the early disciples, for them to follow Jesus initially meant getting out of the fishing boat, dropping their nets, and watching Jesus heal, perform miracles, and ultimately watching Jesus give his life on the cross. But we're we're now readers of these events. So what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to come back to this numerous times throughout this sermon series. But it says a crowd was calling Jesus, and it says that Jesus speaks back to the crowd with his disciples in verse 34. This is what Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? One thing that's interesting about Mark's gospel is it does not paint the disciples in a great light which one professor said, which further validates the authenticity of this account. Peter was not a great disciple, but Peter is the one whispering to Mark, here's what happened next, here's what happened next. But Peter became a great follower of Jesus after he saw him crucified. After he saw Jesus crucified, he became the rock that Jesus spoke over him. And we see that. But in this situation, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So I want you to think this morning practically, just in real terms as we leave today, what does it look like for you to follow Jesus? What does it look like for you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him? Here's what it does not mean. What it does not mean is that you need to add to the punishment of sin that Jesus fully paid for. What it means is you need to rest in the punishment of sin that Jesus died for. So as we think about what does it mean for me to take up my cross, that's, that's a little, that's, that's kind of, are we all to go get wooden crosses like the one we hung in the lobby and walk around with a cross? What, what does it mean for us to take up our cross? But let me ask you this, what got Jesus to the cross? It was a surrendered life and obedience to the Father. Those two things. It was a surrender, not my will, but your will be done. If this cup can pass from me, let it pass not going to pass, I will obey. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we think about these two ideas of surrender and obedience, that's exactly what it means to take up the cross. 
and to follow Jesus, which means this. It's not just surrender to anything, some sort of passive, whatever happens to me is fine. No, it's a surrendered heart to the presence and purpose of God. I could do all these things, but I'm surrendered to you, God, who loved me and gave your life for me. I'm surrendering to you as my highest authority, and I will obey you because you've set me free. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Now I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm no longer an orphan. I'm a, I'm a son and daughter. It says in your word, you're with me, and you're pleased with me because of what Christ has done. So I'm surrendered to you, and I will obey you, not by my own strength, but by the Christ who lives in me, Colossians 1.27, you're my hope and glory, and so I'm going to obey you because your spirit is alive in me, and as I abide in you, I'll bear fruit with you. So I'm surrendered, and I'm walking in obedience to you. But what is the obedience? It's not just to be a good Christian. That obedience, that surrendered life is that what matters to you will now matter to me. And what you've said to your church now matters to me. What you said to go and do, I want to now go and do. So it's not just I'm surrendered, And it's not just I want to obey, it's I'm surrendered to you as my highest authority and by your power and by your grace and by your strength that lives in me, I want to walk in obedience to you for the purposes that you have put forth on the earth. And what does Jesus leave his disciples with? He says this, therefore, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and surely I am with you to the end of the age. That's what it means to take up your cross in a surrendered life as you walk in obedience to be about the kingdom and purposes of God. So it's not just surrender, and it's not just obedience with no end in mind. It's a surrendered life and an obedient heart that says, what matters to you will matter to me. So it begs the question, what matters to God, that every knee should bow, that every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So who doesn't know and who hasn't heard? Because there are three billion people on earth who have yet to hear. And when we pray for the nations every week, I'm hoping that those prayers will not only move the kingdom on earth, but it might move the hearts of people in this room to go and give your life that the nations would know Jesus and allow us who are still here the privilege of sending and serving you well as you go and proclaim the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth and to the house next door. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that is perfect, that helps us see and remember and refresh our understanding of who you are, Jesus. And Father, I thank you for the reminder that you care about those who are sick, that you have authority over people's lives, that you can literally redirect a life and move it in another direction. Father, we thank you that you have authority over all demonic oppression. We thank you that in you we can trust our lives are safe as we walk in a surrendered life in an obedient direction. So Father, I pray for all those that hear this morning. God, they would ask the question, What does it mean for me to follow you, Jesus? And then in that surrender and obedience, you would make it known to them what it is that you would like them to do with their lives as they walk with a surrendered heart in an obedient direction. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.